Hey everyone, and welcome to a May slash June edition of the Open System Podcast. I think you're going to really like the discussion today I had with Wisdom, a really brilliant thinker and leader in the Denver education space, looking to open a school in his home community of Aurora. We spent some really good time talking about what community is, the nature of the education challenges facing our communities, what the leadership challenges are for leaders like him who are trying to achieve building new systems that are open and responsive to community, and what are some of the national forces kind of going on right now that make it harder or easier to have these conversations. I think you're really going to love this uh, conversation and enjoy the time with Wisdom. Wisdom, how you doing? <laughs> doing good. Uh, thanks for being here today. Yep. Thank you for having me. Um, it's a beautiful Denver day. It's gorgeous. <laughs> are you going to be able to get outside today? No. No, I'm not making a pretend. No. Yeah. I go until 8 p.m. tonight. 8 p.m. tonight. Yep. Just like meetings and stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you joining the podcast for the month of May. Um, you know, I have been following uh, you from a distance <laughs> for the last couple of years now. People have been mentioning your name, talking about your work with uh, an unbelievable high regard. So I'm really excited to sit down. Unbelievable. An unbelievable. <laughs> I remember people keep saying this wisdom guy. You got to meet this wisdom oh, guy. All that. Oh yeah, no seriously, man, it's it's real. And so what I'm what I'm really excited to do is to spend our time today learning about you, um, learning about your background, why you're called to this work. Mm-hmm. Um, let's then talk about kind of uh, your thoughts around family engagement, power, liberation, as it currently exists in our system or doesn't exist in our system, or what it would mean to get it in our system. And then I would love to hear your thoughts and reflections on the current Denver-Colorado landscape because I think that uh, you're in a particularly unique space and perspective to see on some of this stuff. So perfect. my first question, let's, let's go back a little ways. Tell me about uh, your grandparents and your parents. Um, where were they from? What did they do? Um, what were their role in your life? And, and then kind of draw that line to you kind of here in Denver Aurora in this current moment. Yeah. I think for me the easiest place to start might be my parents. Um, so I always begin everywhere introducing where I come from. You know, I was born in Togo. Um, but for me, something that's special about that is being able to trace where I come from and the people that I come from and the culture that I come from. Um, and Togo's neighbor to Ghana. Um, and I mean, technically, I'm from Benin and Togo. It doesn't really matter. Those lines were drawn arbitrarily. Um, but something that's key for me is what I think actually about the trajectory of my father. Um, so growing up, uh, so actually the day I was born, uh, which is May 5th, 1992. Happy, happy birthday. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, my full name is Wisdom Gilles Christ Amuzu, and that middle name... Joe Christ. Um, the day I was born, the guy who was running in opposition to the dictator mm-hmm. in my country, his name was Joe Christ Olympio. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was assassinated. Oh, wow. um, now he ended up surviving, hmm. but and he was extradited to France was or something. Attempted assassination. It was. Uh, but my parents gave me his first name as my middle name. Mm-hmm. For me, I tell that story because I think it illustrates. Uh, I didn't grow up you know, hearing the words justice, but by all intents and purposes, I think my mother and my father were very grounded in a sense of community, 
and in the sense of equity and justice for our people. Yeah. Um, and even growing up, um, for example, my father, uh, he studied IT, and he actually, when I was about three or four or five, started a school in the heart of Togo. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a school where students would come and it didn't matter if they had graduated high school or college, they were equipped with, at the time, what was next generation skills like Microsoft Word, yeah. PowerPoint, yeah. Publisher. Um, and that was in the heart of West Africa. Um, and it didn't really hit me that not everyone else was growing up around computers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a certain privilege with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also sometimes I think it's not by accident that, mm-hmm. you know, we're starting a school right now. Like, yeah. everything is a remix. Um, I think just the last thing for me is, yeah, I didn't actually experience poverty until I came to America. Mm-hmm. Um, in West Africa, I came from a middle class, um, middle class to upper middle class in an African economy, yeah. which just means something different. Yeah. Um, and moving from Lome, Togo to Sioux City, Iowa, mm-hmm. I think will just about awaken anybody's consciousness. Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah. How old were you? Uh, I was nine. Um, and first, okay, first we went to, we're in New York City for 45 minutes, hopped on the bus <laughs> to Columbus, Ohio, yeah. which is a refugee population zone. Um, after three months, went to, or- not Aurora, Sioux City, Iowa. Uh, which is another, you know, mm-hmm. sort of immigrant. Someone. Exactly. Um, spent a year and a half there, learned English from these Catholic nuns, and then my dad found a job in Aurora, Colorado, and that's where I grew up. Okay. Um, that's where I went to school, all that. Wow. Yeah. Are your parents still in Aurora? Yes. Um, my father is, my mom and my baby brother actually moved back. Um, about a year and a half ago, and then I'll just come for the summers. To, to Togo? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, which is interesting. I think, well, some immigrants might, let me not generalize all immigrants, Yeah. but you go through your assimilationist phase, mm-hmm. you go to the struggle phase, you make it, and then you long for home. Um, is at least the pattern that I've seen. Yeah. Um, anyway, what you missed a lot was just that feeling of community, of... Yeah which is something that's actually very hard to find when you're in a new place, new food, new language, new culture, new clothes, new everything. Yeah, you know? everything. Yeah. Yeah. I think you know a lot about my grandmother whose family moved from Mexico mm. uh, back in the 30s mm. up to Colorado, and that assimilationist phase was like locked into them for so long. Mm-hmm. And I think she longed for Mexico a lot of her life, um, but... to build any sort of counter-narrative to the assimilationist wave that she had to go through in the 40s and 50s and 60s was pretty yep. pretty difficult. Yep. I think she eventually just kind of decided it was not worth fighting against at mm. some point. Um, so it's really powerful that, I don't know, that's, I don't know I'm, that your, your mom and your baby brother are, are back home and having that. Do you think they found that community again? Oh, yeah. yeah. Something that it's odd, because being that, I have five brothers, so yeah. he's the last one. Um, and... Our stories are kind of opposite. I came to this country when I was nine, and I was born in Togo. Oh, okay. 
He was born in America. And I was there. And he went when he was nine. Oh, wow. And I think there's just going to be something... And he loves it. Like, he loves it. There's just going to be something fascinating, I think, about just that story and where he ends up, all that. I like that your phrase earlier, everything's a remix. I think that's totally real. And it's kind of interesting to see how that plays out in, like, the flip of the history for you and your brother. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, but there was this phrase my mom used to always tell me when we moved to Colorado from California is that we, we could never go home. Mm. Like, even if we decided to go home, mm. that it would be different. Yep. And it would be changed. Yes. You know, and what we, what we thought was there, what we remembered, would not be there anymore. Yes. Uh, and does your mom, has your mom experienced that? Um, it's complicated. It's something that I experienced. I went back for the first time two years ago. And at that point, it had been 14 years since we'd moved. And <clears throat> something that actually surprised me, and once again, two very different countries, you know, Mexico, Togo, two different yeah, yeah. continents. It was amazing how little had changed mm-hmm. um, and what that means for, like, hope. Yeah. Like, honestly, the only thing that had changed was everyone now had a cell phone yeah. in their hand. And it's amazing how, in terms of roads, in terms of, you know, just some of the basic infrastructure. But, but the cell phone. Right. But everybody has a cell phone. Um, I remember reading that Africa has one of the highest per capita cell phone usage yeah. rates of the entire world. Would not at all surprise me. Yeah. Um, so tell me about your career path. Um, you grew up in Aurora. Um, where do you go to school? What do you do after school? What, yeah. what, and you know, to bring us to the moment right now where you're uh, opening the school, where you're sure. attempting to open the school. Sure. Um, so I went to Aurora Hills Middle School. Um, and I went to Gateway High School. And something that's key for me is, how much you? I'm gonna say a thousand times, everything's a remix. Yeah. Probably the next twenty minutes, I'll just. I'm gonna do it. Yeah. Okay. Keep, you can keep saying it. Because uh, literally every aspect of that experience, um, especially today, I realize. Uh, I'll get to today. Um, every aspect of that experience. One, cool. Being an English language learner. Yeah. Well, at the time, it was just called ESL. You know. English is second language, um, living in a low-income situation, uh, being not just a black student, but also a black immigrant student. Um, I think the intersection of those identities, uh, there's a last one too, which is that I actually arrived two grade levels ahead of my peers. Um, and like that's a It's very, we tend to generalize a lot in these settings, but um, like from the get-go, I had internalized America, and we all do, as the land of opportunity and the land where everything is better than what we have. And it amazed me that I'd be, I could be coming from what people here would call a developing country, a third world country, um, and be two grade levels ahead of my peers here. And for me, that was indicative, and I didn't have the words then to describe it, but of well, the savage inequities, yeah. the savage brutality of what we call the public education system. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think experiencing like that constant, yeah, I was really sometimes just resetting expectations for teachers, for bodies that look like mine. Yeah. Um, because eventually I lost 
parts of my accent yes. as part of my assimilation process. Um, but it wasn't until I got to college that I started reflecting on some of those experiences, mm-hmm. reflecting on why every time we'd play a soccer game at um, a school that was in the Cherry Creek district, uh, all those students would be white. Um, all of the stands were filled with their parents. Our parents were working two or three jobs. Yeah. Um, why we would constantly hear racial slurs during those games and nothing would be done. Yeah. Um, you know, you just kind of, when you grow up seeing that kind of, and it is violence, it's a sort of violence, you begin to normalize it and internalize it. Yeah. Um, and I think there was just a series like, okay, why are their bags newer and cleaner than ours? Yeah. Ours are literally from the 80s. Yeah. Um, you know, you just keep seeing that. Once I got to college, I would say that was the straw that broke the racial camel back, however you want to say that. Yeah. Um, I went to the University of Colorado Boulder, mm-hmm. and it was only 45 minutes from Aurora, and I could not understand why half of my peers were not here. Um, and at the time, I studied chemical and biological engineering. Yeah. Because I'm an immigrant, your parents don't come to this country unless they want you to become a doctor, lawyer, engineer. Yeah. Um, but then two years in, I knew I was never going to be successful. It's not what I was passionate about. Um, And I was just worried about economic stability. I needed to make enough money to graduate and be able to help my family. Um, But then I was in this leadership program, and I kept exploring education constantly. Anytime I had a chance to do an enrichment project, a research project, I always studied education. Um, I think for me, it's because it's not this... It's not this distant, purely statistical analysis of a situation. I have a lived experience that keeps me grounded and rooted um, and keeps me angry, uh, which is just being real. Um, I think I spent a lot, I'll get to that. I spent a lot of years channeling that anger into destructive energy. I think for me, the last three years have been figuring out how to morph it into creative energy. Um, Anyway, once I knew I was going into education, I actually talked to a really good TFA recruiter, honestly. Um, I had some pretty, well, as you know, I have critiques. Let's not, you know. uh, I had some critiques about um, who is recruited to teach in the type of schools that I attended. Um, But they had some pretty strong social justice, grounding, marketing, um, and I was like, all right, let me give this a shot. Yeah. And then I had the experience, which I had in almost every institution before co-founding the How to New Collective, which is constantly being the blank, uh, the black male in my school building, yeah. the black male in the Colorado core. Yeah. Um, and of course, what core are you reading? Uh, 2013. 2013. Um, and I think that experience, um, and I don't know how deep you want me to go into. <laughs> Wherever you want. <laughs> um, yeah. I think what I've seen happens quite often is there's a cowardice of sorts. Um, where people, and I don't know if it's because of the very polite form of white supremacy that's practiced here in Denver, um, but people tend to avoid naming names, naming organizations, um, for lots of political reasons, which, trust me, I understand. Yeah. Um, yet, 
it keeps us from ever really dealing with the funk of the situation. The actual root of the issue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the first school that I taught at was Strive Prep Montbello. Mm-hmm. Um, and Montbello was only 12 minutes away from where I went to middle school myself. Yeah, that's pretty close. Yeah. My kids would go to the Aurora Mall and see pictures of me and my family in this photographer's shop that we've been going to since I was 11, you know? So I just had a different relationship. Um, and I could not understand what we were calling innovation, what we were calling um, reform, mm-hmm. honestly. Because um, I understood, having experienced it, I understood that there's no way in the hell I would... Um, it's why I went to, into education. I had teachers who would just come in and talk to us about their marriages for six months. Um, I had teachers who would sit in the back of the room um, and essentially you got 50 minutes to be doing math problems and just come and ask me for questions. Mm-hmm. That was rigorous instruction. You know, I had that experience. I understood the need for high expectations, mm-hmm. uh, but I didn't understand uh, what I would legitimately call pedagogies of intense behaviorism, of um, where teachers start feeling like prison guards and students start feeling like inmates, um, where, uh, and honestly, where predominantly students of color are experiencing um, something that is led by people who don't come from their neighborhood, their culture, their community, um, despite their good intentions. Um, And I struggled a lot with it. Um, And I think there were two experiences, and I'll shut up. Um, One is I taught at Strive Prep, and I also taught at a place called the African Leadership Academy Mm -hmm. in Joburg. Mm -hmm. Um, And both organizations were led by a white male in his 30s named Chris. Um, and despite the differences in continents, mm-hmm. by the way, it's not a personal attack on either one of those men. No, but I don't everything's know. a remix. Everything's a remix, honestly. Yeah. I was like, wow, I can even go back to my continent yeah. in an African city, in an African country. And see a pattern repeat. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it just became clear. feel like sometimes they just say the same sentences over and over. Yeah. But until this change is actually led by those most impacted, it will never be sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think, I'm not foolish to think it can happen um, in a silo. I generally believe there's power in diverse coalitions. Solidarity. Right. Um, but it's quite clear what needs to happen in 10 years. It's an entire shift of the decision-making power, um, both at the micro, meso, macro level. Mm -hmm. Individuals, organizations, institutions, and systems and policies. Yeah. That's a whole lot there. Let me stop talking. That's a beautiful thing. Two thoughts. Are you a science fiction fan? Yeah. Yeah. There's one of my favorite book series. It's called Hyperion. Oh, okay. You ever heard of it? I've heard, but I don't know a lot about it. Anyway, it's a really amazing four-part series that kind of investigates set like about 1500 years in the future okay and it's really about humanity and the patterns we create of god science technology and that kind of you know everything is a remix yeah and it's a big part of how humanity has to come to terms with the patterns that we create yeah and perpetuate 
yep. in our own lives and in the macro systems of, at this point, like uh, galactic civilization. Yep. And it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, piece of uh, four books. Interesting. I highly recommend it. Okay. So that's because it delves into, like, I think a lot about just what, what does it mean to be human? Yeah. What does it mean to be alive? I mean, the, the fundamental premise of the book is what does it mean to be alive? Okay. And have life in a, in a universe. Yep. And that it is this, like, sense of pattern and that empathy is really this force that exists outside of us. Okay. Beings that are alive create uh, empathy. Okay. And so to kind of weave that back, would love to talk about you starting the school and creating empathy for in the Denver community yeah. for the students you want to serve. Yeah. You, know, you have to go out and create empathy for those students to the Aurora School Board, um, to philanthropists, yeah. to or, or organizations. Um, how do you? What inspired that call, that purpose that you're leading right now, and how yep. do you and how do you make the case that the school should be the uh, a place that serves students wonderfully well? Yep. First and foremost, it's the, that direct experience I talked about. It's um, one, yeah, wanting to go back and serve, but also I have a little brother who's currently in that system. I have another little brother who's in that system. I have a cousin who's graduating in two weeks from that system. Oh. Um, so I'm talking about, thank you, yeah. well, thank you to her. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about my brothers, my sisters, my cousins, my friends, and now my friends' children. Yeah. Um, two, something that was key for us from the get-go is actually not so much the what. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we want to create an innovative school that will matter 100 years from now. Mm-hmm. There's no point in new schools. Uh, I'll get to that. Um, but what was actually key for us is the how. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think, is the biggest paradigm shift we're trying to uh, provoke. Mm-hmm. And that is the original purpose of charter schools is for students, parents, and teachers uh, to have power, decision-making power, over how their people are educated, yeah. um, decision-making power over that budget, yeah. um, and, and especially when they're not being equitably served. So that is what grounded uh, this approach. Because actually three years ago, we had a charter written. Mm-hmm. And it was done the way it had been done. A bunch of educators sitting in a room, yeah. writing up something. An amazing Google Doc. That yes. No one else besides those people got to see. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and... We paused for lots of reasons. Um, it was not done with community. Yeah. And regardless of those good intentions, it was something we were just trying to do to a community. Yeah. And then two, um, without running the right pilots, couldn't ensure that model would be successful yeah. and didn't want to experiment on children. Yeah. Um, so we actually paused, which gave the first impetus for developing these centers. Yeah. Uh, there's about three right now running in the Denver metro area. Where are they at? I know one's near Manuel. Yes, that, the Mardell J. Writing Center. Mm-hmm. Um, Hack School started at Strive Prep Excel. Okay. And then there's a makerspace at Compass Montessori, which is out in Jeffco. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and aside from those lessons learned from those centers, um, the next part was how to actually, and I'll be very direct with you. Yeah. It's what it is, is community organizing. Mm-hmm. Um, it isn't by accident that I spent a year at RISE, Colorado before doing this and it's also not by accident that they 
are specifically in Aurora. Um, it, it, I'll go into that in a second. Um, putting together that community design team, yeah. finding, and I'm not actually even going to talk about the process. The process doesn't matter. What was key was the relationships. Yeah, and, and that you had a North Star goal that you were putting power in the hands of families and communities about yep. the design of the school. Yes. Um, and every aspect from even the meeting tonight yeah. is we're about to finish out this process and now the community design team is interviewing we have three candidates who want to serve on the board of the school they're going to interview them and then vote to elect them as our founding board yeah. and versus me having that decision making power it's those students those parents who want to send their kids to the school yeah. um, so let's 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 I want to you set an, an awesome scene, yep. and I think you set a really amount of context. I appreciate the perspective on your history, the past, the present, now where, where you're going yep. with the school. Yep. I want to talk about power. Yes. And I want to draw a line between colonialism yep. and settler colonialism, yep. which is kind of the system and structure that we live in. Yep. Um, obviously, what uh, your family communities went through in Ghana and Togo, like that is the colonial system. Lines were drawn, put mm-hmm. on people, yep. imperialism. Pulled people apart, pitted them against each other. What we have in America is similar, but slightly different, right? Because people showed up here and just settled here. Right? Yeah. There's very few people in here in Denver, sadly, who are actually the original inhabitants of this yep. place. Yep. So the system that we've designed here and the structure we've designed has been for settlement, yep. not for you know, the, you know, a lot of the imperialists have left the former colonial places that they inhabited. Yeah. Um, obviously, they left behind a lot of crazy systems and structures and a lot of pain and blood and heartache. Yep. A lot of loss, a lot of extraction. Yep. But we do live in this settler colonial structure. Yeah. And so we have to make decisions about how to reinvent that structure. Yep. If we care about reinventing the structure, yep. which I do and I know you do. So the question then is, um, what are the tools that we have to use to both yep. use that settler colonial system to upend it for the people that it was never intended to serve yep. without reifying the system and actually causing the same problems? Remixing the same problems we had before. Yep. And two points. One, everything, legitimately, every single thing we do is about power. Yeah. Um, and sometimes we can get the funders to understand this. Sometimes we can get well, the authorizer. We're just trying to get authorized. Uh, why have a center? Power. Why have a school? Like I said, this is making power yeah. over resources money, a building, classrooms, teachers. Um, And then the second thing, it comes down to that Sankofa, which is actually how far back are we going um, to influence what we're remixing for the future? Uh, Because we have an explicit, our explicit theory of change is we'll have to change the system from within through these centers. Mm -hmm. And of course we need these independent schools who are helping us towards new systems of liberation, right? Um, And I think we just have to be careful what we remix. Um, No excuses, authoritative charter schools. Mm -hmm. In lots of ways we're remixed, not in lots of ways. I would sit in presentations where what was presented to me was broken windows theory. Yeah. And... um, How to control kids. Yeah. Yeah. The idea... How to control communities. Yeah. That one... uh, What... One um, tiny infraction will lead to ultimate chaos, so we have to ensure that 
every aspect of the student's behavior, clothing, uh, as well. Curated. Yes, exactly. Um, and that leads to this very sanitized, deodorized environment yeah. um, that I think has long-term consequences. Yeah. Anyway, that's what they were remixing. Yeah. I think if we go far back, we'll find... You know, I have a different relation to this because um, when I'm talking about indigenous philosophy, when I'm talking about... Like, I have direct relationship to that, you know? Yeah. Um, it's not all theoretical and coming from books for me. Yeah. Um, so when I'm talking about, like, uh, in the classroom, it can look as these simple things, which the outsider looks cute. Like, students recite this in Lakesh poem, mm -hmm. Tu eres mi otro yo, you are my other me, si te hago daño a ti. Mm -hmm. If I do harm to you, me hago daño a mi mismo. I do harm to myself. It keeps going. Yeah. Um, that simple, and what really became like a classroom mantra back then, was really just, uh, Nathan, Nathan's my co-founder, he would use the language of, um, what, is, what does he call it? The core principles? What is it? Um, like he, he talks about it in terms of, I think Elon Musk also uses the language, uh, principles enforcing functions, yeah. which is we have to define the principles that will guide us uh, to the creation of these new systems of the future. Yeah. And for me, those principles have to be, we have to reach back to the time when education was not oppressive. Because it wasn't always this way. Yeah. Um, there was a time when education served. Um, like I'm, and this is a very basic example. Mm -hmm. um, nothing we're doing is new. Yeah, nothing's new. Nothing. There's nothing new about project-based learning. Personalized learning. Personalized learning. There's nothing new about experiential learning. Yeah. And sometimes I'm even like, uh, if you go talk to some of the folks in the private school movement. Yeah. That's actually what they just think is good pedagogy. Right. Yeah. And sometimes I even hear like blended learning. Um, and sometimes we have to ask a, a school in the 21st century that isn't using technology. What, what do you, you, you know? Um, it's just that we're so far outdated. Yeah. These things are seriously called innovative. They're, because, they're innovative because the system is so static. Right. And resistant to any sort of shift in Right times, uh, because a lot of it's sometimes loss of control. You think about those examples you just gave away. If you really believe that it's about control, mm -hmm. then personalization, it's blend, scary. blending, yeah, like people are people. That's a loss of control for a lot of mm -hmm. uh, both educators and administrators. And it forces <laughs> us. It forces us to ask the question, why, yeah. why, why? Which is the one frustrating conversation I would constantly have, yeah. regardless of what system I was in. Yeah. Anytime you ask a major leader. At whatever part of the system, be it your principal, yeah. your any other administrator, be it the superintendent, being whatever, yeah. ask people, what is the purpose of education? Mm -hmm. And their answers will vary so much. Yeah, and will illustrate the ills with which we have to deal with. Yeah. Um, it is kind of like a Rorschach test question for people. Mm. And I think even in this building that we're in right now, mm. you could ask all these folks that have dedicated their careers and lives to education, we would get a significant amount of difference mm -hmm. in terms of what is the purpose of education. Yep. Um, and it would be that illumination of their fears and hopes mm -hmm. and their background and identities. Um, and, yep. and, and the fact, we did this in my grad school, and it wasn't the first week we ever did the program. We asked this question, we broke it into different groups, and it was crazy the amount of diversions in the room. Right. Economic mobility. Right. 
force, mm-hmm. civic responsibility, you know, personal happiness. Like, yep. These are major divergences. And what's needed, what a school to me is, thinking as a community organizer, is the opportunity to align a set of diverse values, mm-hmm. purposes, and visions under a collective vision. Yeah. Because void of that collective action, That's right. we will never build the power it takes to actually transform these inequitable systems. Yes. Um, and sometimes for me, it's less about, well, no, it's entirely about who gets to define that collective vision. This goes to a major problem that I think is often diagnosed in the American school system is that, uh, that I think people go, well, there's really no coherence or pedagogical mm-hmm. approach. You go to other places around the world or countries and they say, here's how we teach. Right. Here's what, we, here's what our opinion is on how we teach. Right. In America, very rarely do you encounter that. Yep. It's usually like, here's the curriculum, here's what we're thinking, go for it. Right. Um, and in the absence of that pedagogical choice, yep. I think the system seeps in a ton of prejudices and biases exactly. and reinforcing behaviors exactly. that make it really complicated and then end up not doing what you're talking about. They end, mm-hmm. up, end up not making choices about collective values, mm-hmm. which is one of the things that's really neat about schools taking on some of these values questions you know, maybe not as deep as we would like them to go. Yep. But I think that when we go around the DPS 20 years ago versus now, yep. more and more schools are naming their values, they're naming their pushes, and maybe naming approaches of learning. Yep. Um, that's, I think, a positive trend. It's probably still not sufficient for what we're talking about in terms of power and liberation. Yeah, and the interesting, interesting thing that's happening is as you start to define some of those values and there's resistance, mm-hmm. who has the power? To change, yeah. right? Who is forced to change? Yeah. Who is forced to adapt, to conform? All of that. And I think that's... Uh, that, for me, explains like the current zeitgeist. It, yeah. Which is like, no, we really are at a... Uh, I don't know if you would call it an inflection point. You were telling me about this theory. Um, the fourth turning. Right, the fourth turning. Yeah. You know? Um, it is a legitimate... It is a moment, and I think everybody feels it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's just the national politics are so dramatic that... No. I don't think it's just that. I think it's a legitimate... What do you call it? Fourth turning. Yes. And you know, uh, well, you know, and my belief in that is that the decision that's in front of us right now as a civilization is whether to become an open civilization or a closed civilization. Mm. And I think that a lot of what we're talking about in terms of power relates directly to openness and mm. whether or not we're going to force systems open for parents and families to reinvent them for themselves. Mm-hmm. When we would run community design processes when I was at Denver Public Schools, when we started the community design teams for the years of turnaround schools, yes. so many administrators would say, well, we can't give all the power to the parents. Right. And I'd be like, well, what do you think they're going to do? Right. You know, what, like, what, what's your deeper fear here? Right. And I think that like that micro example, yes. talk about healthcare. Yep. Talk about uh, immigration. Yep. There's this deeper fear that when we turn over power, people are going to be yep. turn the power against yep. other folks. Yep. They're going to manipulate it. They're going to misuse it. Yep. And I think it's a it's there that that's a major problem, which I think forces a lot of people to want to be and live in closed systems. Yep. Well, if we can all agree to close the system. Yep. And give minor aspects or illusions of power to other people, then I my deeper fear of that will not be realized. Yep. 
Um, yeah, I think these systems are always inherently selfish. They seek to perpetuate themselves um, and not out of, for me, it does not even matter about intention. Sometimes what will really distract the conversation is people's personal, um, you know, that's what stops the conversation anytime we're talking about privilege yeah. or power is your personal gripe with the situation. Yeah. When really, like, we're all guided by these systems, um, which is why whenever we break down the logic yeah. and get to that basic, all right, what are the core principles the system is built on? Yeah. And what are some of the forcing functions that exist within and outside that system that guide it? Yeah. And let's change those. Yeah. Um, so let's um, let's go towards kind of where we're at in Colorado and in Denver Aurora right now, kind of the educational moment. We're talking about it kind of at a system level. Mm -hmm. It's an inflection point that we're at. Everyone's feeling this pressure. It definitely mm -hmm. feels like there's a we're in the midst of a shift yep. in our Denver space right now. I would say I, I would I feel like I haven't really met anyone who doesn't feel like yep. that's the case right now. You yep. know, maybe I just don't hang out with those people. Hey, you I don't know. know. But uh, you can correct me if, if, you're, if you have people in your life who feel like <laughs> that everything's, everything's hunky-dory, you know, yeah. let me know. Um, but um, we're in the middle of this shift, um, and there's all these different dimensions to the shift. Yep. New schools, new leaders, yep. new thoughts around power and liberation, yep. um, new generation coming into play, an older generation who is concerned it hasn't finished what it wanted to get started. That's a great way to put it. Um, where do you think the role is? Where, how do you see your role in this shift? Um, what do you want to accomplish during this shift? I mean, what do you feel like, what does it require of you? What does it require of other people? Me personally or this wave? Mm, I think, let's start with you personally and then let's zoom out. Okay. Something that I've consistently seen. I don't know who your listeners are, but I'll use my authentic language. Yeah. As a West African, one thing that I think I was lucky is I was born into a different, trust me, for its own set of issues, but a different set of colonial hierarchy. Yeah. Um, I became black when we immigrated to America. Yeah. You know? But what that has given me, though, is this honest sense, and it's not arrogant, it's a sense of dignity about who I am, where I come from and the genius that exists within my culture and community. Yeah. And for me, like, what that genius could do to this world yeah. and what it could heal. Yeah. There's something very healing about Wakanda. It's because we get to imagine what might have happened void of colonial interference, yeah. right? And what these systems that are grounded in African sense of philosophy and ideology, the genius that that could create. Um, and I think... Honestly, mm -hmm. in these spaces, or I'll typically, especially if we're talking about power, mm -hmm. I'm not going to run into a lots of West African immigrants who are working in Denver mm -hmm. uh, and in the ed space, mm -hmm. let alone now let's just generalize it to just black folks, and then let's just keep generalizing to people of color, mm -hmm. okay? Um, my role is to be, and let me define my, what I mean when I say radical. Mm -hmm. I mean it the way Ella Baker meant it, which is yeah. to be radical is to understand the root causes of a problem and to do something about it. And to give the work to others. Mm. And it's not about this, you know, whatever preconceived notions people have about being radical. It's actually, no, are we talking about the root causes of the issue? Yeah. 
And the root causes for me always comes down to white supremacy. It is just not... Uh, so my job is to remain radical so that whenever, whether we're talking about a talk-to-action discussion, yeah. whether we're talking about a conversation we're going to have with our authorizer, what should we present to them, whether we're talking about this funder conversation, yeah. remain radical so that the solution continues to inch towards something that I think will be much more humanizing to my people. Because yeah. otherwise, we end up with conversations about these surface-level uh, issues. Like, a great example of this is... Um, uh, oh, even better. The achievement gap. Yeah. Um, great. Uh, I feel like this is going to open up a new can of worms. <laughs> you can go there if you want. Or you can just uh, follow down the radical path. Yeah. Uh, let me not go down there. Let me not go down there. Let's not go over there. So, so you see yourself as in this moment, in this transition, this time, is to play uh, a, a role of a community-driven, community-partnering radical, if I can summarize it. Let me see if I like that phrase. Yeah. <laughs> or, or a community-organizing uh, person who has a radical And somewhere in that throw the word just rooted. rooted. Like it's rooted in something that is, I genuinely mean that when, I come from a civilization that's been around much longer than this one. Oh, yeah. And I come from a set of ancestors. Um, and we don't talk about this language a lot yeah. in the ed space, not alone the ed reformer space. Yeah. Um, but the village that I come from that I'm rooted in You know what? Yeah. Let, let me just put it that simply. It's a long, long, long history. Yeah. You're really rooted in that. Be the radical that's rooted in the history of your people, your community, and your culture. Oh, yeah. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. So let's, let's zoom out then from you. Yep. We have a lot of the folks in the movement, myself included, a lot of folks on this floor, other places, and yep. different parts of the spectrum in terms of what their role. What would you ask of other people in this transition moment? What would you ask of people in this inflection moment? Yes. The only constant will be change. And what's key is not necessarily warring factions. That's not going to get anybody anywhere. But there has to be this humility that grounds everything. Yeah. One, the humility of what I call the vanguard to understand that uh, it would be the definition of hypocrisy. For I think of this quote. Love without truth is hypocrisy. Yeah. Truth without love is brutality. Yeah. And sometimes, honestly, I think about that with how I do my work. Yeah. I can be very sometimes brutal, especially in this work setting, yeah. you know? Um, and then you kind of start to gain that, like, oh, if we're talking about DEI and wisdoms in the room, you know, yeah. oh, God. Brutal. Yeah. yeah, brutal. He's going to lay the truth. Yeah. yeah. Yet at the same time, what's required on the other side is understanding you have not created this perfect utopia um, and it would be hypocritical for us to sit here, despite the many sacrifices it took, the resources it took. Yeah. Like nobody wants to talk about. You might have invested five hundred thousand dollars in something that uh, didn't work. maybe didn't work. Yeah. And we cannot sit in that hypocrisy. We have to own the truth. Yeah. 
hold each other accountable and move forward. Yeah. Um, so I think for all grounded in humility, they can be a reformation of the vanguard. And I think empowerment of the new wave. Because yeah. we cannot do it. It actually has to be in tandem. Mm-hmm. Um, when I meet leaders like Kimberly at Kip, yeah. who you could easily say, uh, you know, hey, Kip is like Kip's the OGs kidding. of the ad reform movement. Yeah. Let's not yeah. kid ourselves. Um, and yet you have a leader who is open yeah. to, oh, look, open systems. Oh, uh, who's open to new ideas about diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, yeah. about doing the work with community, not to the community. Yeah, let's work together. Let's yeah. build together. Um, did I even answer your question? You did. Okay. I think it, what I heard you say is that it requires the old, older guard um, to uh, be honest about what has worked and what hasn't worked, mm-hmm. to be open mm-hmm. to the new ideas of the new generation upcoming. Mm-hmm. Um, but so what does it require of the new, what does it require of folks of our, of our yeah. space and our age? Because, yeah, sometimes I, I turn the table and I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what do these people want to say to me? That's right. <laughs> and they probably say the same thing. Like, I need you to have the humility yeah. to understand that uh, – you know what? No, let me not play that game. Next week, you bring someone on to talk about that. I think what's required of us – Within 10 years, we will become the logic of the new system. That's right. And there will be another wave that sees us now as the traditionalists. We'll be holding the line on something that we've built. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, everything's a remix. It's a cycle. But I think we have to have this rigorous commitment to not accepting the logic of the current system. Yeah. Um, at all times. At all times. And Whether we built it or we see it from afar. Yes. Yeah. Um, because what will naturally happen, despite all of our good intentions, mm-hmm. is we will become that. Yeah. We'll become their vanguard, you know? And that's the circle of life. But if we, in this moment, just choose to conform, you know what? Here we go. Let me break it down this way. Yeah. Transformative resistance. Yeah. We have four choices, according to this theory. One, we can be self-defeating. Mm-hmm. And I think at the early start of my career, that's what I was. Yeah. Lots of self-defeating behavior. Yeah. Anger, understanding that things are unfair, but not the t- I don't have the tools to do anything about it. Yeah. The second way is to be reactionary. Mm-hmm. I was also very good at that. Mm-hmm. Okay, what I'm going to do is sort of um, try to organize that takedown, the current system. Yeah. Um, I'm going to really just sling a lot of stuff at the walls yeah. without an actual understanding of how power works. Yeah. The next way is to be conformist, mm-hmm. which is, and you know what, some people believe in this, I don't think it's my role. I'm not an entrepreneur. Yeah. I, I just, I, I'm, not, I'm not your guy for that. But some people can do it. Yeah. Um, but the ways this looked that are not helpful is simply saying, look, they're doing the best they can. Mm-hmm. And I think also we do this where we say, well, have you seen the other options? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, and then the last one is transformative resistance, which is understand the rules of the game Figure out how to navigate it without losing your identity. Yeah. And that's how you get to transform. Because if success means that in 10 years, 
Look, even I'm scared to name names. Uh, but look, Moonshot is developing a new set of leaders. Yeah. If you've met Corey, if you've met Aset, we are not going to become... It would be foolish to really expect that this wave will end up looking exactly like the old wave. Yeah, no. There's no way. There's just... That, it, and that would actually be disastrous. Mm-hmm. Um, see, and then my mind went to this question. But it, is the system really ready for that? Yeah. No. Well, that requires, you know, to go back to your different stages of what we have to do. It requires people to make the system ready for it. Mm-hmm. And it requires mm-hmm. um, to be able to release pressure in the system when it starts to get overloaded. Mm-hmm. Because we don't want the system to break down just as that group of people you just mentioned are rising to power. Because then that would be an excuse to take the system back, just as they're handing the reins over. Yeah, and there's a certain degree of, I'm like, uh, how much do I say on this podcast? How much do I not? And one is like, when we analyze past movements, there are actually very real development of new institutions yeah. sometimes covert takeover of That's current mm-hmm. existing institutions and systems yeah. um, which is there is more subversive and subtle exactly in the confrontation exactly yeah. and that's at every level um, both if we're talking what does that look like for the funders for the district for the schools for the nonprofit organizations for the for-profit companies So I think we've arrived to a really good spot to kind of begin a, a, a little bit of a, uh, to kind of close down. Uh, but I have one more question that, that is, this is gonna, this, this is from my own personal curiosity, but I think it goes back to solidarity. Okay. You know, as a Mexican American yep. in my, my community, <clears throat> I wanna talk about solidarity a little bit with you yep. as a black American. Yep. Um, and I wanna- Black African black in African, America. African American, excuse me. Yeah, there you go. And I would even probably say, in my identity spectrum, it's probably a um, Mexican, New Mexican American. Yeah. That's probably a more appropriate uh, term because I think yep. my grandfather's history goes back in New Mexico to like 1680. Whoa. A long time. Jesus. And, you know, his grand, my great grandmother considered herself Spanish. Okay. You know, That's but deep. she actually was, you know, some probably level of indigenous and Spanish uh, connection with the combination because of her period colonialism. Colonialism in New Mexico. Have you ever spent any time there? Uh, But it's a beautiful place. uh, But it's like it's a really very different place than the rest of the country. Yeah. I have been completely blown away, and like there's been some rays of hope in these past few years of darkness. Yeah. And one of them has been Black Panther. Yeah. In my mind. Yeah. And the imagining of Wakanda. Yeah. And what that I think has done to build a collective different potential of what could have been yep. what could be still yes and it's been an incredible thing yeah why do you think there's no Mexican Wakanda yeah why do you think there's no indigenous Wakanda yeah in, in American culture and my question to you is you know the Avengers movie just came out yeah and a lot of people are like man this movie's so awesome it's so diverse where are the Latino superheroes? There's no Latinos in this whole yeah. in this whole this whole piece. Yep. And I want to know, like, what is our responsibility for solidarity in these moments? Yeah. 
because I am genuinely happy. Yeah. Uh, this huge part of America gets this yeah. comic. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I don't want to take that away. Yeah. I don't want like, hey, where are my people? Yeah. But I, I also <laughs> ask this question. Like, yeah. The story of the Spanish conquest of the Americas is one of the most brutal and, and sad yeah. stories of the last 500 years. Yeah. But I think America, you know, we talk about slavery. Yeah. We got to talk more about slavery. Yeah. We got to talk more about Reconstruction. Yeah. We do not talk about the Mexican-American War. Yeah. We don't, like, that's not even a conversation topic that, yep. no one talks about the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Yeah. No one talks about Spanish language rights guaranteed yep. to our people in this area. Yeah. This, in this part of the country. Yeah. You know, Arizona, jeez. And that, that literally was a part of Mexico. Yeah. And now we can't teach about Mexican studies. Yeah. Where, where is that? What is, what is the opportunity for solidarity in these conversations? And what would you recommend to folks, Mexican folks, or my, folks in my space? Like, how do we best build that solidarity in some of these narratives and some conversations? Yeah. First and foremost, anytime I visit an indigenous community, be it the Lakota in South Dakota, be it um, the Maori in New Zealand, mm-hmm. be it on the African continent, mm-hmm. I always see very interrelated concepts. Yeah. Um, and so I want to make two, I want to separate two things. Yeah. One, there's from the pop culture imagination. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we're still waiting for that. You know, Latinx Wakanda. Yeah. Let's, let's just keep it real. Yeah. Um, and within sort of some of the, yeah, legitimately, whether we're talking about that, Inla Ketch, Ubuntu, yeah. Akko, um, Mitakio, Yasin, there are concepts that are very interrelated to me that show a type of solidarity and unity that exists. Yeah. Um, Across human consciousness. Yes. Histories. Yes. Yeah. And I think the question you're asking for me is how do we raise... Um, once again, when we go far back, we see that solidarity. Yeah. How do we raise that and manifest it in our present day? Yeah. Um, and so then, which gets me to the second bucket of I think what we're seeing, and I don't know what decision they made with the next census, but I think by 2050, um, white Americans will be the minority. That's right. Yep. Right? Yep. And what has been happening, and it's not new, it's been happening for the last 50 years, is the induction of um, Latinos into the white racial category. Yeah. Um, and that's for very concrete, strategic, calculated, that's like a power move. That's it, yeah. Um, and, and it appeals to assimilationist factions in the Latinx community. Mm-hmm. Big ones. Yeah. Uh, most... You know, let me not get into the specifics. Yeah. Um, so that's why I think that leads to some of this, um, what you could even call like a, let me not use the word schizophrenic. There's a better word for it. Uh, it, it is this dual identity, I think, that Latinx folks have to experience, which is, um, like sometimes it, it will literally say for race, white, black, Asian American, and then, there'll be an ethnicity box that will say... Latino, not white. Right. Um, which implies you can be white and Latino. Which mm-hmm. I think about 40 to 45% of Latinos mm-hmm. do, if I'm correct. I'll make a correction if that's true, but it's incorrect. But <laughs> um, 
So for me, I think that's an explicit attempt by the powers of that be, by the system, to uh, like actively prevent some of that solidarity. Um, and then I feel like that was the last part to your question. Because for me, that just explains like... No, I think that's completely right. I mean, this is, an, I would almost name that I think that's a duality intention that exists in my family pretty substantively. Mm -hmm. I think that we have very different opinions in my family about what does it mean to be Mexican and what does it mean to be white. Mm -hmm. Sometimes those things line up and sometimes they don't. Mm -hmm. And what's our role? You know, I think my dad and my uncle have very different thoughts about it than my, my aunt, for example. Mm -hmm. My aunt is very much a simulationist because mm -hmm. of herself. Exactly. And they've, they've been out of work because of being Mexican. Yep. And they've been targeted for it in a way that they she has never experienced. Yep. Uh, for a variety of reasons. So I, I accept that as a, a part of the, the, the question. And it's like a it, it's a it's a it's a way the structure plays off our assim assimilationist wants to belong mm -hmm. to be a part of the power structure mm -hmm. um, that also asks us to forget the past. Yes. Yep. You can be a part of the great white power structure if yep. you want, um, but you may have to embrace not letting more people in now. Right. And I legitimately think because because all this country is to me is a project. Mm -hmm. and that's a great word, by the way. I always think that's a, term. That's, a, that's a very appropriate term for what we're talking about, I think. Yes. It's like a mold, it's a it's an ongoing project that right. uh, has it has no uh, it will it, at some point will stop or change or transform and mm -hmm. it had an end date and a beginning date so therefore may, may have an end date too. Right. Yeah. And I think the legitimate question is like all I can say is at the Hanu, at the Hanu Collective we have our answer which is it isn't by accident that we're at Compass Montessori predominantly white yeah. upper middle upper class families. Um, we're in a school that's predominantly Latino students. Yeah. And a neighborhood that's also a mix of uh, lots of things are happening, honestly, mm -hmm. to the east side of the. Yeah. I can't even capture that. Um, and then Aurora. Those which are intentional like, choices, though. Yeah. yeah. Aurora is intentionally like immigrants, refugee populations, one of the most diverse cities in the state of Colorado. That isn't by accident. We legitimately believe void of um, solidarity of a very diverse coalition, but grounded in pretty anti-colonial mindsets, yeah. if that word scares people, uh, anti-racist mindsets. Yeah. Um, and if that scares people, we don't, they're probably listening to this podcast. A lot of that listening to this podcast. Because <laughs> so. uh, honestly, I have, and I understand the incessant focus on people of color, teachers of color, leaders of color, trust me, I get it. At the same time, I've had plenty of experiences with leaders of color who exist in systems that aren't grounded in the change we're looking for. Right. Um, what we really need to be talking about are mindsets, principles, values, those basic things that ground these systems, changing those, and I think sometimes worrying a little less about the optics of a situation. You know. Um, anyway, that's just a long way to say it's a great return to the purpose of the Hot New Collective. 
So this is our final question. This usually has a little more fun into it too. So cool. what's the, the two questions? What's the best trip you've ever taken? Well, nice. <laughs> what's the best trip you've ever taken? The best. The best trip for any reason. The problem is that I'm thinking of all these deep things. I just want to say something fun, you know. Oh, it's the best trip I've ever taken. You know what? Honestly, I'm trying to keep it fun, but yeah. I can't. I got it. I got to lay it on you, you know. <laughs> it was Cape Town. Cape Town. <clears throat> Cape Town is one of the most beautiful places on earth. Wow. One of the most, hands down, beautiful places on earth. Yeah. And I just couldn't help. It's also one of the most violent to my consciousness. Yeah, wow, that both could be there. Yes. Mm-hmm. You will pass, as you're leaving the airport, miles of shacks, the shanty towns. And then you'll get to this nucleus that looks like a, a utopia of sorts. You've got the ocean, you've got these mountains. Beautiful. You'll walk into a restaurant in a predominantly black and African country all of the waiters and servers will be black and the manager and the owner will be white and as you walk around the city you'll see actually the european diaspora lives here yeah um and you ask yourself yeah you ask yourself uh because i think that's the duality of what it means to inhabit a black body in this world which is um, yeah, there is no place you can go to not be reminded of violence. Um, and you know what? For me, yeah, Wakanda, I mean, if we're talking about in terms of beauty, Cape Town. Yeah. Um, but with current politics and current history and current climate, um, which explains the social dynamics you'll experience there. Uh, but for me, it was one of the best trips because it's time it takes to the healing. And violent. And as a human being, I don't think I can ever escape that duality. Yeah. Beauty comes with violence. Um, but it was a great trip. <laughs> I, love, I Honestly, man, wisdom, I love that so much. And I lived in Galp, New Mexico for six years. Where? Galp, New Mexico, hmm. which is on a small little town, about 20,000 know, 20, people around the border of Arizona, Navajo Nation, Zuni Pueblo, hmm. uh, in New Mexico for a long time. Hmm former mayor of Gallup, because uh, I, I was lamenting to him a very similar thing that you were talking about. I said, man, Gallup is the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful places I've ever lived. It's just unbelievably beautiful. Um, and yet there's so much pain and violence here. Mm-hmm. And he said that someone had told him that there was a Irish, old Irish phrase um, that essentially meant there were these places in the world where there was a thin membrane between uh, love and pain. Mm. He also believed that that the way that the universe was designed, and I, I believe this myself, is that like you can't have great love without great pain, mm. and that you can't have great beauty without great pain, mm. and that the places we live that where there's less pain and less there's also less beauty, mm. and that like we have to come to terms with that both within ourselves and in the world. Damn. Yeah, that's beautiful. Wisdom. It was so nice to have you here today. Thank you.